Okay, um, we're going to continue with service this morning, and I just want to invite my sister Jasmine to come up and give us our scripture reading. The creation of man and woman. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the, on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to, that sight, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the uh, Fison. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bladium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is uh, uh, Chihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Kush. And the land and the name of the third river is the, is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of, out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Good morning, everyone. So we've been looking for a few weeks at the book of Genesis, and we've been talking about origins in our sermons. And we've been talking about how if we want to live properly in God's world, we have to understand where we came from. 
We have to understand like, w- what the goal of life on earth is. We have to understand what's gone wrong to make the world like it is today. And if we get these things right, that's going to help us live properly in God's world. And if we get these things wrong, then that's going to lead to wrong ways of living. And God has laid out many of these answers to these big questions in the book of Genesis to help us live properly in today's world. And so far, as we've gone through Genesis, we've looked at the creation of the world and everything in it. Last week, we talked about how on the seventh day, God rested. And today, the story is going to rewind and retell that story of creation from a different perspective. And there's a lot in this passage, if you didn't catch that from the scripture reading. So we're going to actually spread this passage out over two weeks. This week, we're going to focus more on what this passage has to teach us about authority and work. Next week, we're going to focus more on what this passage has to teach us about relationships. But today we're we're looking at work and we're going to see that God made humanity to rule over and work in creation. And we'll look at authority and work. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for teaching us about who you are, about who we are in relation to you and how this world came into being. And I pray that as we look at your word today, that you would be speaking to us and giving us clarity on what it means for us to live as your people. God, speak to us today. Give us hearts to hear and obey and to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, authority. As you read through today's passage, the idea of authority and proper authority is just woven throughout this passage. We see that God makes the world and he gives humanity over authority over the world that he's created. But it's very clear in the passage, humanity is not the ultimate authority in the world. God is. And I know in our world today, we tend to to not like the idea of authority. We tend to sort of cringe at the idea of authority. We see it as inherently bad or at least dangerous. And we want to rebel against authority. We We want to be the authority, really. We don't like other people having authority over us. And so if we're going to talk about authority, especially if we're going to look at it as something potentially good in this passage, We need to take some time to unpack the idea of authority in this passage and see what it shows us about authority. And there are three key ideas about authority that we need to see here. First, proper authority brings order. Second, God's authority is a personal authority. And third, living under proper authority gives freedom and blessing. So proper authority brings order. God's authority is a personal authority and living under proper authority gives freedom and blessing. So first, proper authority brings order. Now I have a question. We live in Asia. Have any of you ever traveled to a developing country in Asia in a big city, maybe like Manila or Hanoi or Jakarta and experienced the traffic there? Yeah, I I hear some laughter, right? We all know that that when there's a lack of proper respect for authority on the roads, it creates mayhem, right? Like in in places where people don't respect the authority on the roads, they just ignore stop signs and traffic lights and just keep on driving. They ignore the, the lanes on the road and just sort of squeeze into whatever space their vehicle can fit into so that they can get ahead. If you're a pedestrian, 
you cross the street at the peril of your own life, even if you're at a crosswalk or even if you have that little green man telling you it's safe to go, it's not. You still have to look both ways a couple times, make sure it's safe. Uh, Some places you just sort of step out in faith and just keep walking and and trust that the vehicles were part for you like the Red Sea. And all of this ignoring of the rules inevitably results in a crash. And when that crash happens, guess what? The emergency vehicles can't get in because everyone's packed so tightly, there's no space for them to get through. And so everything just comes to a complete standstill and you're stuck there for hours. We, we, we understand this when it comes to traffic. A lack of proper respect for authority on the roads leads to chaos and disorder and frustration. And here's the thing, that's not just true on the roads, it's true in life. But the good news is, as we see throughout this passage, proper authority, when exercised properly, brings order to the world. It frees us from that chaos. If you look at the passage, there's a clear chain of authority established here. God is the one with authority over everything. God delegates authority to humanity to rule over the rest of the created world. And we see throughout the creation story in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, when authority is exercised by the right parties in the right way, it brings order to the world. We've already seen this in Genesis 1. We we saw at the start, the earth was formless and void and God steps in and uses his authority to bring order and form to the formlessness and to fill the emptiness of the void. And today it shows us how as he created the world, he gave the world humanity to tend that newly ordered creation so that it could bring even greater order to the world. He delegates authority over creation to man and the man we see in this passage, he gives names to all the animals. What's he doing? He's categorizing them. He's breaking them into groups. He's giving order to the world and bringing a structure to things. See, in our world today, we've all seen authority go wrong, right? That's, that's a reality. And we'll look in a couple of weeks at, at why that happens. We've seen it misused. We've seen it abused. That's a danger anytime fallen people, broken people exercise authority. But authority that's working properly actually brings order out of chaos and makes the world a better place to live. That's the first thing we see about authority in today's passage. The second thing we see about God's authority specifically here is that his authority is a personal authority. I think a lot of people in today's world, when they think about God giving us commands, the picture that comes to mind is sort of a voice speaking to heaven, from, from heaven to the world thousands of years ago completely unaware of any changes that would happen in the world over the next few thousand years, completely unaware of who I or you as an individual person is and the nuance of of life in our world. It really doesn't care about us as people. It just cares about the fact that we obey and that it is obeyed and respected. And if that's the case, if God's commands are impersonal declarations made in complete ignorance of the real world, with no concern for us as actual people. Man, this world's a bleak place to live, huh? Like we're just subject to the whims of a cosmic dictator who doesn't know us, who doesn't care about us. Obviously, if that's the case, there's still a benefit to obeying that kind of God because you don't want him angry at you, of course, right? But if that's who God is, you can't really say his commands are for our good. It's just something we have to endure and put up with. 
But the good news is that that picture of God and his authority, that's not the picture of God we get in this passage or in the Bible as a whole. See, yes, God does make it very, very clear in this passage that he is the ultimate authority. He gives humanity a very important command with very dire restrictions on it and and consequences for breaking it. He says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. How's that for a consequence? But I want you to see something here as God gives the command. First, just the context of the command is great generosity. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but there's one tree you can't eat of. So it's, it's a restriction given in the context of generosity. But even more, look back at Genesis 1. Every single time God is referred to throughout Genesis chapter 1, do you know what he's called? I'll tell you, he's called God. But right here at Genesis 4, at at the start of today's passage, there's a transition. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Did you hear that? He's not just called God here anymore. He's called the Lord God. And Lord, in most English translations, is going to be in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And over and over throughout chapter two, when it refers to God, it doesn't just call him God, it calls him the Lord God. Now, why is that important? Does it make a difference? Yes, it is important. It does make a difference. And here's why. Because God from Genesis one, it's a generic name for God. It's the same word used to refer to any God. Like in our world, we would refer to Allah or Krishna as gods. It emphasizes God's bigness and his power, but it's a generic term. But the term Lord, the one used in chapter two, it's special. It's a unique name of the God of the Bible. It's, it's the covenant name of God. It's the name he uses when he makes promises. It's the name that sets him apart from any other God. So if you fast forward to Exodus chapter three, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. God shows up to Moses. He's like, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And Moses is scared. He's like, God, if I go tell them that, and they say, What's the name of this God who sent you? What do I say? And in verse 15 of Exodus 3, God says, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. See, Lord isn't just a generic title for God. It's the name that when someone asks him, Who are you? What's your name? That's his answer. It's the name God uses when he makes promises. It's the name he uses when he enters into a personal relationship with someone. And if you look at verse 16 of today's passage, who does it say gave this command to the man? The Lord God commanded the man. As God gives this command to humanity, he's not sitting back in heaven completely impersonal and oblivious to the real people in the real world. He's the God who knows people. He's the God who loves people, who enters into relationships with them, who wants what's best for them, who steps down and interacts with them in order to rescue them from themselves. And as the all-knowing creator and sustainer of life, his commands, they're given with full knowledge of everything throughout human history, of all the ways the world is going to change over the years. It's given with full knowledge of who you are as an individual, who I am as an individual, It's given with a complete understanding of what is the best way to live in the world, not just thousands of years ago, but today. God's commands, 
we can obey them with joy because he's not a far off, impersonal dictator who just speaks to us from the sky. He's a loving, caring father who knows us personally, who knows the world we live in, who cares about us, who wants what's best for us. He's the one who shaped us and gave us life. And therefore, as the creator, he, he both cares for us and has authority over us. He is the one who sustains our lives every moment of every day. And as our sustainer, he, he cares for us and he has authority over us. God's authority, it's not impersonal, it's not distant, it's not far off. It's personal and caring and loving and good and seeking our best. And that brings us to the third thing we need to see about authority today is that living under proper authority brings freedom and joy. Because God's goal throughout this passage and throughout the Bible, when he uses his authority, it's not just to force humanity into obedience. It's to bring us freedom and blessing. See, as created beings living in God's world, we're not simply free to, to make our own rules. We see in today's passage, we are formed from the dust. You know what that means? That means there are limitations to what we can and can't do. It, it means we are weak and frail. It means we can break. It means that there are specific ways we are designed to operate in the world. And rules and boundaries can seem harsh and mean and like they ruin our fun. But think about this. If you have a fish, I know some people in the church have, have fish tanks at home. If you take one of your fish in its fish tank and you're like, you know, the boundaries of this fish tank just keep you from, from experiencing true freedom. I'm gonna liberate you from the tank. I hear laughter because you know that that would be cruel and horrible. The fish only has freedom and the opportunity to experience the blessing of life when it's within the boundaries of the fish tank. And if you take it out of those boundaries, you're not giving it freedom, you're killing it, right? Proper boundaries give us freedom. Proper boundaries used in the proper way, they don't stifle us, they don't keep us from joy. They give us the space and structure we need in order to flourish. And so in order to have the best life possible, we need to listen to the one who made us and who knows how life works best and live within the boundaries that he's set for us when he tells us how life is meant to work. So one thing we see in today's passage is that God gives us commands in relation and bodies in relation to our bodies. God's command today is don't eat this specific fruit. It's, it's something with their bodies. Don't do this action. We see in today's passage, God gave us bodies. What we do with our bodies is subject to his authority. Like, I mean, this is kind of ridiculous, but I'm not free to just do whatever I want and expect that life will just go the way I want. If I sit on the couch, never exercise, and drink four liters of Coke every day, I'm gonna be obese, I'm gonna be diabetic. That's just how God has wired the world to work. And if I did that, everyone would look at me and be like, Eric, you're an idiot. Why are you doing this? You're destroying your body. Because we understand there are certain boundaries that are in place where we have to eat right and exercise right if we want to experience the blessing and freedom of having a properly functioning body. And we all understand that when it comes to food, but it applies to our bodies across the board. It applies, like we saw last week, to rhythms of work and rest. It applies like we'll see next week, to our sexuality and how we interact with other people. It applies to every area of our physical lives. God hardwired the world to work in a certain way. And he hardwired us 
to work in a certain way within the world if we want to experience the best life possible and have freedom and blessing. And when we use our bodies in a way that's out of line with how he designed us to live, it doesn't go well for us. But again, that's, that's not something that he's put there to trap us into fearful obedience. It's, it's actually something he's given us to bring us joy because God uses his authority to bring freedom and blessing. God wants us to have the freedom of living in properly functioning bodies. So his word warns us against the dangers of gluttony. As our creator, he knows exactly what we need in life and he delights in giving us good gifts. I mean, look how God uses his authority to bless the man and give him freedom in today's passage. In verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. God created the man with a need to be around other people. Even in a perfect world, before everything goes wrong, it's not good for him to be alone, which again, we're going to talk more about that next week. But when God recognizes this, I mean, God's known it all along. When he says it out loud, what does God do? Well, he takes all the animals, he lines them up, he marches them past the man, and the man gives names to every different animal, tiger, giraffe, cat, bee. He has all the animals march past, he names them all, and in that process, the man comes to recognize what God has already known all along. There's no one here who's a match for me. And so does God say, well, it sucks to be you. You're gonna die miserable and alone. No, of course not. God delights to bring blessings. God uses his authority over the created world to provide the man with a partner, someone like him that the man can have companionship with. God delights to give blessing. He's designed the world in such a way that when we live under his authority, it brings us blessing and freedom. Again, we tend to think of authority and boundaries and rules as things that just get in the way of our freedom and joy but we see here they are pathways to life and joy. And even this command about eating from the tree, it might seem sort of arbitrary. It might, it might seem like, Eric, I hear what you're saying, the rest of this, but how does that tie into it? It's still a path to blessing and joy. Think about this. Have you ever been around someone who thinks that they are the center of the universe? <laughs> how is it to be around that type of person? <laughs> I heard a sarcastic amazing We all know that's not true, right? It's not amazing to be around someone who thinks they're the center of the universe. It's miserable. And why is it miserable to be around someone who thinks they are the center of the universe? Because the reality they face every day in the world doesn't line up with the expectations they have for for life, right? They expect everything in life should be about me. Everyone around me should be primarily focused on making me happy and they're not. And so I'm miserable about it. And so I'm going to make everyone else miserable by complaining about how The reality I'm living in doesn't meet my expectations for the world. And when God gives us this command, don't eat from this one tree, he's reminding us, life isn't about you, it's about me. You're not at the center, I am at the center. I set the rules, life is not about you. He's actually setting us free from the tyranny of making life all about ourselves and becoming miserable. He's setting a boundary that keeps life centered around him, not us, because life works best when the focus is God, not us. And obviously the Bible has lots and lots and lots of commands in it. We don't have time today to dig into each individual command and talk about how it shows God's goodness and leads to blessing. But I want you to see proper authority, when used properly, it brings order and goodness to the world. 
that God's commands, they flow out of his personal care for us. And therefore, even when we can't see how they can be good, we can obey them with joy. And living under God's authority, it brings blessings to us. And one specific area where we see teaching about God's authority and what that means for us today in today's passage is when it comes to work. So let's look at work. And what we see is that working in the right way with the right attitude is part of submitting to God's authority as his creation. Look at verse 15 from today's passage with me. It says, the Lord God took the man. This is before the woman was created. She eventually joins him in this task and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God using his authority, he gives the man and later the woman with him a job to do. And their job is to exercise their delegated God-given authority over the garden where God has placed them. To be the rulers under God looking over the world. Like God, they were supposed to use their authority to bring order and goodness to the world. Like God, they were supposed to, to care personally for this world entrusted to their care. Like God, they were supposed to use their authority to bring blessing to the things that were under their authority. And we see two specific verbs in this verse that describe what people were meant to do, to work it and to keep it. And even though I don't think anyone in here is a professional gardener as our jobs, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think these two verbs, whatever job we do, give us clarity on what God wants us to do in our work today in the various jobs that we have. The first verb is to work it. To work the garden means to help it develop and grow. Proper God-honoring work takes the things entrusted to us and it makes them better. That may seem really simple and self-explanatory, but, but that's really important. God puts us in the jobs that he puts us in to develop and grow the things under our authority. And just to clarify, bigger doesn't always equal better. Right? If you increase your profits by starting to do predatory practices, that doesn't mean that you're getting better as a company. Actually, sometimes cutting the profit margin to work in more ethical and, and proper ways can be a sign of becoming more healthy. But the, the first job that God gave this man is to work in the garden, to help it develop, to help it grow, to help it become better. And the second command is to keep it, or the second task is to keep it. And keeping it involves an element of protection. Keep it from slipping into decay. Keep it from harm, either from things inside or from things outside. Keep harm from happening to it. And like I said, most of us here, maybe all of us here, we're not gardeners as our professional jobs, but these two verbs, to work it and to keep it, describe what God calls all of us to do in all of our jobs to work and keep the various areas of authority he's entrusted to us. So just take a minute and think about what does this look like? What does this mean in your job? For example, if you're a banker, how can your work contribute to making the economic foundations of society firmer and more secure through the things you do for your company? How can you make it better? How can you, in, in an ethical and above-board way, help your company make money? so that they can keep giving loans to businesses so that businesses can operate and provide goods and services that people need? How can you help your company keep making money so they can provide salaries and paychecks that can support families across the city and across the world? How can you work it 
And how can you keep it? How can you guard your company against fraud and predatory practices that harm your company and the world around you? Or if you're a teacher, what does it look like for you to work and keep your classroom? How can you cultivate your students and help them learn the assigned material and grow into well-rounded adults, or at least take a step in that direction? How can you keep them from having experiences that discourage them from learning? How can you keep them from being treated by the other students or other teachers in ways that, that take away from their God-given dignity? And when I talk about work, I'm not just talking about paid jobs, also unpaid things. Like if you're a stay-at-home mom, how can you work with your children, cultivate them, teach them to grow and mature into responsible adults who love God and love others? How can you train them to work and keep the things in their own area of responsibility at an age-appropriate level? It might be something as simple as like, put your toys away in the box when you're done playing with them. Don't throw your car across the room because you'll break it and then you won't have it anymore. But just teaching them and training them at age-appropriate levels what it means for them to begin working and keeping the things under their care. As a mom, how can you keep and protect your children from influences that will harm them? These two questions, how can I work it? How can I keep it? They're questions that all of us need to be asking about our specific jobs. Whether we're pilots, whether we're lawyers or data analysts or helpers or entertainers or salespeople or whatever else we may do. How can I, through what I do, help make my company better? That's the first question. How can I, through what I do, help make my company better? And second, how can I, through my work, protect my company from danger, decay, and harm, whether that's coming from inside or outside. Working it and keeping it, that's the essence of all the jobs that all of us do every single day. And notice that these roles were necessary even before the world became broken and messed up like it is today. Like, they're not things that, that become unnecessary in a perfect world. They're, they're things that God has called each of us to do because we are human beings made in his image. And, and doing these things faithfully is part of our part in living under his authority in the world that he made. And when we do these things faithfully, when we work and keep the things entrusted to us, what's going to happen? God's blessing is going to spread through us. I don't know if you were paying attention during the scripture reading today, but if you were, you may have noticed there's this weird paragraph in the middle of the passage about rivers. When we were reading, did anyone hear that passage about rivers and be like, what is going on here? Why is this here right now? Okay, I'm the only one. Everyone else got it perfectly and completely, and I'm the confused one. It's okay, I'll share with you what I learned when I asked that question. Why is this paragraph here about the rivers? You know why the rivers are here? Because it's showing us that when we faithfully obey the things that God has called us to do, the blessings spread out from us and bless others. See here, the river starts in the garden, but it doesn't stay in the garden. It flows out of the garden. And as it goes out into the garden, it splits into four different rivers. These rivers bring life-giving water from the garden to the rest of the world. And biblically, four, it's a number that symbolizes the whole earth, like the four points on the compass, north, south, east, west. The four rivers are symbolizing the entire world being blessed through what's coming out of the garden. The passage is saying, when things go well in Eden, and Eden experiences blessing, when the garden experiences the blessing, that blessing doesn't stay in the garden. It overflows and gives blessings to the entire world. 
And obviously you and I, we're not living in that garden anymore. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks when we get to Genesis 3. But that general principle still holds. When we do our part to be a blessing in the places that God has put us, the blessing doesn't just stay there. The blessing overflows and becomes a blessing to the people around us. I mean, think about it. If you have an airline and one of your employees figures out how to fly the planes more fuel efficiently, you can save costs for the airline. That's great. But then what happens with those saved costs? Well, they can be passed on to the consumers. And now people are able to travel and see loved ones more often because you did your job well and figured out how to cut down on expenses for the airline. Or maybe during COVID, people don't get cheaper airline tickets. They still have to pay way more. But the airline's able to pay the salaries of more staff members during this time, not have to lay as many people off because you figured out how to do things more efficiently for the company. The blessing spreads to different people through you being faithful in your job. Or maybe you're a manager in the office and the people in your office just tend to be not really motivated to do their jobs, not really on board with what the company is trying to accomplish. And you as a manager figure out, here's how I can motivate these people. It's not just going to be a blessing to your people to have, or to your company to have motivated employees. It's actually going to be a blessing to everyone you interact with because they're going to be Have you ever tried to interact with someone from a company who's completely disengaged, completely apathetic to what's happening? It's a nightmare. But when you talk with someone who actually knows what's going on and cares about things being done right, you feel like, yes, I feel like we're getting somewhere in this conversation. It's a blessing not just to their company, but to you as the person interacting with their company. The blessing doesn't stay there. It spreads out. When we work and keep the areas that God has called us to work and keep and we do it well, that blessing doesn't stay there. It flows out and becomes a life-giving blessing to those around us as well. And this, this passage gives us an incredibly good view of work that actually contrasts two of the major wrong views of work in our world today. The first wrong view of work, one that probably many of us have interacted with, people in Hong Kong who have this view, is that work is everything. Anyone ever met someone like that in Hong Kong? Work is everything. Work gives me my identity. Work is how I'm going to leave my legacy in the world. When that's our view of work, we're going to work hard, but we're never going to be able to rest because we're going to be slaves to our job. We just have to keep working. We're going to prioritize it over everything else in life. We're going to leave a train wreck of broken relationships behind us because work is the most important thing. And I'm sure we've all met many people in Hong Kong who live this way, that work is the most important thing. And the second wrong perspective is that work is evil. It's a burden. We're going to see in a couple of weeks, work as we know it is far, far from what it was originally meant to be. We, we, regardless of the work that we do, there are going to be things that we have to do that feel like we're just sort of picking through thistles and thorns. There are going to be things in our jobs that feel entirely futile. But that doesn't mean work itself is bad. It simply means that the good gift of work has been corrupted somehow. The trouble that comes with work doesn't mean that work itself is bad. And the story of creation right here actually gives us the antidote to both of these wrong views of work. It corrects the idea that work is everything by reminding us that God is the most important thing in life. He made us. He sustains us. This is his world. We saw last week that he puts a safeguard of Sabbath into the world to keep us from becoming slaves to our work. From the start, Our work is to be done in a context where we know work isn't everything. But also, the story of 
creation reminds us that we're made to work in paid and unpaid ways and that work is good. God put each of us in communities and families and jobs and interest groups that we're part of in order to make them better and to protect them from harm. That's still so important to make them better and protect them from harm, especially in a broken world where, where so many things go wrong more quickly and more easily than they were created to. God wants us to experience joy as we work in the roles that he's placed us in. So work is good. It's not everything, but it's important. God's given us all a job to do. And yet, as I mentioned several times today, it's broken. We live in a broken world. We're dust, we're limited. And that means despite the, work, the fact that work is a good gift from God, there are limits on what we can accomplish even with the best work possible. And one of those limits is that no amount of work, nothing we can ever do, is gonna get us back to the perfection of the world that's described in today's passage. We're gonna see in a couple weeks that human disobedience brings corruption to the world. It gets us kicked out of there. We can't get back. We're all part of the problem. We all at times try to live our way rather than God's way. We seek to be the ultimate authority rather than to let God be the ultimate authority. And if proper authority brings order to the world, but we're living under improper authority, it means we're bringing chaos to the world and disorder to the world. If proper authority brings blessing and freedom and we're refusing to live under that, we're cutting ourselves and others off from that blessing and freedom. And that means that our greatest efforts, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we do to try and bring that paradise on earth, it's always gonna fall short. So does that mean there's no hope? Why even bother trying? It's all fruitless in the end? Well, no, of course not. Because Jesus has come and he paid the price that we couldn't pay to make things right. And part of the promise that Jesus gives to his followers is that one day, for those who trust in him, we're going to get back to the garden. Things are going to be made right the way they were always supposed to be. He's going to use his authority to bring proper order to the universe and give us freedom and blessing that we were made for. See, when we get to Genesis 3, we saw in today's passage, there's a tree of life in the garden. When we get to Genesis 3, humanity disobeys God. That tree of life is taken away because it becomes a danger to us. If we were to eat of its fruit, it would lock us into an eternity of brokenness and futility. It would be miserable. And the tree of life doesn't appear again in the Bible all the way up until the very last chapter of the Bible when it reappears in the center of this new Jerusalem, a garden city. And you know where it is? It's along the banks of a river, just like here in Genesis chapter two. And you know what river that is? It's called the river of the water of life. It's all imagery about the future that's promised to us, but it's all coming straight out of today's passage. And you know what that means? You and I, we can't bring paradise on earth through our work, but God can through his work. And he's a God who delights to give blessing to his people he created. He wants each of us to experience the blessing of living in that paradise. And through Jesus, that price has been paid for all of us to get in which means what we do today matters. We're still living in God's story. And he created us to live under his authority and to work, to work and keep the things he's entrusted to us. Because even though we can't get back to the garden through our work, he's bringing it back to us. And he's using our work today to give the people around us a a picture, just this tiny glimpse of those blessings that he has available so that they can have a longing to join us in that blessing 
of being in the garden with him forever. So let's be a people who live under his authority and who work and keep the things he's entrusted to us in a way that honors him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us and teaching us about who you are, about the world that you've made, about who we are. God, teach us to live properly in response to you, to be people who live under your authority and people who work and keep the things you've entrusted to us faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned in the sermon, you and I, through our efforts, we cannot get back to the garden. We've usurped God's authority. And we're told, we saw in today's passage, that the consequence for usurping God's authority is death. And the amazing good news of the Bible is that Jesus came and he died the death that you and I deserve so that we can be set free. And God knows, like we saw in today's passage, that we're dust, that we're limited, that we're frail, that we're fragile, that we forget. And so he's built reminders into the life and rhythm of the church to help us remember, to remember the fact that, that we're not defined by our failure, that we're not defined by our shortcomings, but we're defined by Jesus and his love for us and his rescue of us. And one of those reminders is communion. It's the bread and the wine or juice that we eat and drink to remind us that Jesus' body was broken so that we can be set free, that his blood was spilled for us so that we can be rescued and forgiven so that we can be made new, so that we can be made the people of God. And so we together right now are gonna take communion and remind ourselves and one another of the fact that, that Jesus loves us, that Jesus has rescued us, that Jesus has made us a new family in him. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're with us, uh, but this is something specifically for Christians. So we ask that as the, as the uh, cups come by, just let it pass, don't take one for yourself, and just take this time to watch and observe and learn about what we're doing. This is also a reminder of the fact that God makes us a family. And so as you prepare to take communion, if you realize that you have a problem in your relationship with someone else in the church family, I want to encourage you go talk to them before you take communion and deal with those issues. Uh, Just have a conversation briefly with them so that as we take this, we can truly be celebrating the fact that we are a family who loves one another. So I want to invite the ushers to come forward and distribute the elements. And in just a couple minutes, once everyone has a cup, I'll come forward and lead us as we take it together.